Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. G'day and welcome to the Educated Hunter. My name's Matthew Gibson, and this week I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine, Brandlin Shockey. Now, Brandlin is the son of legendary Jim Shockey. Some of you may recognize his name. He is a TV host, hunter, conservationist, outfitter who is Canadian born but is very, very well known, particularly in North America and the international hunting community. I worked with Jim for nearly five years as one of his full-time cameramen. Now, since we met in New Zealand, Brandon and I have become very good friends. Uh, we worked together during that period where I was filming, um, specifically on the TV show The Professionals. We have been very good friends ever since. The conversation that we have today is focused around Brandon and his role in the hunting industry these days. These days he is a very successful producer of a number of different TV shows including The Professionals, Uncharted, uh, Carter's War and he's working on a number of very exciting new projects at the moment. But he went from essentially not being interested in the hunting industry or hunting per se to being one of the top producers within the hunting industry. So we have that conversation. It's a very interesting one. Brandlin's not a, a born hunter through and through and he'd be the first to admit it. So hearing it from his perspective and what it was like growing up as the son of Jim Shockey is a very interesting one. We also talk a lot about hunting and conservation as well as creativity within filming and a few stories from from Brandon's childhood going on safari and being involved in such a heavily hunting orientated family. So again, Brand's one of my best friends. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. He is a truly talented individual and I, I can't wait to see where his career takes him in the future. But I will not talk any longer. Without further ado, here is Brandon Shockey. Finally managed to grab you. I know you have a busy man. <laughs> oh, my pleasure, man. Well, busy man slash sleep deprived man. Yes. Yes. Busy in a different way nowadays. Yeah. So we managed to grab Brand. We were both down in Texas at a mutual friend's birthday party, mm -hmm. which was it's a lot of fun. Different world, man. Holy. Texas is a very different world. Yes, especially I'm sure coming from New Zealand, I would think. Yeah, it's just completely different in the way that they've grown up. And it's not just the firearms thing. There's so many different factors at play there. There's the firearms thing. There's the religion thing. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up in a family that strong ties to the Methodist church, but it's a completely different different world. Those, I was there last Easter, actually. We went to with Corey went to their like a mega church thing in okay. Texas. So that was a completely, it was an eye opener. Yeah. I like, um, one thing I do like about Texas a lot is I do feel like when I go there that, I mean, this is, you know, like kind of the, the, the American dream, you know, sort yeah, of alive. Absolutely. Like I do feel like the people's mindset is, is, is really cool. And I get the sense that everyone is, you know, thinking, yeah, as, as an individual, 
you can go out there into the big, you know, wild world and, and kick some, kick some butt. Yeah. Even when Corey was talking the other day, he was talking about a few of his friends that were at his birthday party and just sort of doing a very sort of yeah. big bite. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. He did all right. You know, he made a, you know, $20 million doing this and oh yeah, yeah. that guy did all right. But he did really good actually. He's probably worth 250 million doing this. And they weren't like extravagant, like oil construction type no. jobs. It was a guy that did like a, what was it? Some kind of training course around. Um, yeah, none of it is like you know. My grandfather was the you know prince of you know Wales or something, and you know handed down the the family money, and then now this guy lives in a mansion. It was like this guy, you know, was a regular guy. Went to had school, nothing. yeah, did really well. Had yeah. a good idea, turned mm-hmm. it into a twenty million dollar business. Right. Sold it, and now he just has a beautiful house in Texas and hangs out, and you know. Goes hunting. Yeah. Like they all yeah, go hunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, the American dream. No, it's yeah. cool. Um, yeah, that was fun, mate. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being here. I had a bit of a think on the airplane on the way home because I knew we were going to have a chance to have this catch up. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And there's a uh, there's a number of different ways, well, there are a number of different threads, I guess, we can pick up on that I think would be really interesting to our audience. Um, there's a obviously your, let's call it family lineage. Jim Shockey is obviously a, a relatively big name, particularly here in, in North America around the hunting side of things. So mm-hmm. there's that whole aspect of growing mm-hmm. up essentially as the oldest son of Jim Shockey. I'm sure there's a, right. right. quite a, a big story behind that. Um, and we might get into that a little bit earlier. But I, what I actually settled on in terms of a, a story that's – let's start from the start. And basically okay. it's a, just a, I guess a story that I've been involved in when I actually stopped and thought about it. You have been involved in my, I guess, post-university hunting career. So when I went from being just a recreational hunter in New Zealand and growing up hunting, and when I graduated university, I got into the guiding side of things. And it wasn't long after that that I met you and your father and your mother. So In New Zealand? In New Zealand. So met you there. It was my first year guiding made those connections and you and I became very good friends from that point on. And then years down the track, I came back and worked for Jim and that led to a number of different things. But when I actually stop and think about it, you have been involved, you know, either directly or indirectly in the background and as sort of my hunting, my international hunting career, if you like, right from the beginning. So right. it dawned on me at that point that that story itself was probably <laughs> worth bringing up because I, I guess for any young and upcoming hunters who enjoy filming or want to get into the TV side of things or even just want to start their own business or do their own thing, I think the story, particularly your side of the story, going from selling furniture in Kelowna right. to producing, how many are you doing these days? Uh, we're doing four four series this year. Four different series that mm-hmm. are loosely based, well, uh, hunting related. But they're all hunting related. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is a is a pretty awesome story. So, do you remember what comes to your mind when you think back when you first came to New Zealand and I met you? Because I've got some notes here. I know what I think of. But. That's funny. I'm, uh, it's funny. Uh, I wonder what you're going to bring up your notes, but I do remember uh, vividly actually, and this is sort of really etched in my memory uh, that. Part about New, the thing about New Zealand that I walked away with and I remember perfectly was the game. It was a sh- uh, what was it? It was like a in the lodge. There was like a big screen, and on that screen <laughs> was projected this like uh, dove hunting shooting game or yeah. something. You take this like shotgun Who with a laser, it, like laser shot. I think it was it laser is. shot or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I remember 
the first night everyone's, you know, eating dinner or something. And I get done early and I go and find this laser shot machine set up. I'm looking at the high scores and, uh, you know, it's like the number of dubs you shoot in a row or something. And it's like, you know, a bunch of names and there's this name, like it's like Matt to the top and it says, you know, whatever, 47 dubs or something. I thought, oh man, that's probably pretty hard to beat. I bet you Matt, he's been up here practicing all season, which I'm sure he has been. And, uh, I was probably first or second try, beat that record. And then, and then, uh, I think I was there for three or four days and, and managed to just totally put my name on every single spot on the, on the top 10 record list there. So that was what I remember, Matt. And then, and then somehow, somehow after I left, uh, you know, you, the machine, you know, stopped working or something and all my scores were lost. And yeah, and that's, yeah. I actually remember that there was a, um, a kid. Oh, one of the hunting trips took that computer and decided to chunk it off the side of the uh, was desk. It was yeah, I'm up. sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we lost all the scores. I don't know how it happened. No, I, I actually, in all seriousness, I remember a very charismatic uh, kid my age taking my family across New Zealand, showing us the sights. Um, and at that time, I was, as you remember, I had like big clodhopper boots on. Kind of I do remember that. I actually was thinking about that. They were like three sizes too big, right. and they were um, my dad's hand-me-downs. When the, what got me is you're wearing your dad's hand-me-down uh-huh. pants, and at that stage, his you know his waist would have been a you know, probably a thirty-eight. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so thirty-six. But I remember you having to wear a belt, and then you had all your camera batteries in your pocket, so that your pants were like constantly trying to fall down with yeah. these giant boots on, yeah. tramping around in the hills after tar. Like I do remember that really well. And you know what the other thing is, and it's probably a story I haven't told. I probably haven't even told you this, to be honest. Ooh. But the um, when you guys first came over, uh, my season was done. So that was my first year guiding ever. And my season was at an end. And our boss, and I owe a lot to Colin Rayner, if you listen to this, mate. Thank you. Convinced me to essentially stay on for the Shockies hunt to just help out. And I don't know if his, uh, I assume his motivation was for the good of my career. It may have been just because he didn't want to carry carry the backpack, but that's what I ended up doing. But I, I'm very glad that I did. So I worked that couple of weeks that you were down south mm-hmm. essentially for free. I just hung out at the lodge. And oh, I didn't know that. I wasn't oh, getting paid. So it was an opportunity to you know, meet some people in the industry that had some international ties. And I didn't know your old man from a bar of soap when he arrived, mm-hmm. um, which probably helped me in a long way. I didn't have the normal <laughs> stigma that everybody else seems to yeah. have before they arrive. You know, you build up somebody in your head and wrongly or rightly, you, you, you form an opinion. So me, I had a pretty blank slate when I met your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was an advantage. So that was an awesome experience. And you guys went away. Over to Aussie, didn't you? After New Zealand, the first time. I mean, we're going way back. Uh, I think probably Australia. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think maybe my mom had uh, flown back. And just to be clear, you know, I was filming for hunting adventures at that time. At that time, so your yeah. dad's original show, Jim Shockey's Hunting Adventures. So you went back to Aussie, and I went back up to the North Island. Right. So my season was done. I was trapping possums for a bit of pocket money, and my intention was to come over to Canada. Would have been my first time, and I was going guiding for. Um, caribou in northern Quebec so I had a bit of time to kill before I got on the plane and I got a call from Colin um, a couple of weeks after I got home saying well the shockies are done in Aussie they've got some extra time he wants to come back to New Zealand to hunt Samba right can you a find somewhere to hunt Samba 
and B, look after them while you're here. And I was like, yeah, I'll give that a nudge, no problem. So at that point, I was 20. And basically, Colin gave me a budget and said, here's your money. Out of that money's got to come trophy fee, food, accommodation, <laughs> transport, the whole shoot match, and whatever's left over are your wages. <clears throat> so, so that's why we were eating those like uh, like uh, noodles. Uh, what do you call them? Yeah, two minute noodles. And yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Kimchi noodles and <laughs> staying on the you know side of the road and the highway. I got okay. <laughs> that makes more sense. Yeah. So I put you up in a hotel in in Palmy, uh-huh. and I, we found a place to go hunt samba. But from driving from Palmy, it was probably an hour and a half drive. And we had to get there super early because they're quite, um, they were pretty well nocturnal. Um, so the best time to get them was first thing in the morning just so it was getting light and then last thing at night. And your dad was hunting with a muzzle loader, which adds a, yeah. another element to it. Plus you clopping around in your clodhoppers <laughs> behind him with a camera. Um, uh-huh. So we went there and we were, we were going through another guide as well. So it just added another person to the mix because he had the access. So we... I, I distinctly remember it in the fact that I, I had it all budgeted out and thought to myself, okay, that'll be fine. And we, we slogged away for, it was probably five days worth of samba hunting, but I was getting up at three o'clock in the morning and making sandwiches. Practicing your uh, dove game. Yeah, yeah no. Okay. I, was, I remember we, three o'clock in the morning making sandwiches and then I would drive into Palmy, pick you guys up at 4 a.m., drive an hour and a half <laughs> To the hunting area. And I remember on about day four, we were starting to get a bit, you know, short on sleep and your old man giving me shit because I didn't check the weather before I left. He asked me what the weather was going to be like today and I said, no, I don't know. And he chewed me out. <laughs> chewed me. That was my first my first tune up from Jim Shockey. We were mm-hmm. driving at about 4 a.m. And I was driving along thinking, yeah, no, nah, I didn't have time to check the weather, but okay, that's fine. The next day we, we got a Samba and then we went and we hunted fallow and we set up some turkey hunting and, you know, basically at the end of the seven days. Oh, and the other thing that I never told anyone on that hunt is our family dog got run over on about day three. Oh, wow. So we were away hunting and um, our lab went out and got creamed on the road. So our lab family dog of eight, nine years got run over. Yeah, so I, you've never told me any of this. <clears throat> so I was a little bit sort of ruffled around the edges as it was. And we got to the end of the hunt and uh, – Everything was good. Everything was fine. I'd successfully outfitted a um, a hunt for Jim Shockey and you and your mother, and we uh, got to the end of the hunt. And I did the numbers, and that hunt cost me <laughs> about one hundred and fifty dollars. Wow! In the end, so not only did I didn't get paid for that one, it actually cost me money. So the <laughs> I never told anyone this. So it cost me. And then I remember your dad gave me a tip in the form of a check for a hundred bucks. So wow. I was negative 50 for the whole hunt. Huh. And at the at the very end, he looked at me and said, if you ever need a job in Canada, give me a call. And I remember thinking in the back of my mind, I wonder how many people he says that to, eh? Mm-hmm. In hindsight, probably not too many. But at the time, I thought, I was thinking to myself, he probably does. But yeah, I can, tell, I can tell you uh, not too many. Yeah, so in, in hindsight, not too many. But I remember thinking to myself, be careful what you wish for because – you know, this has cost me five bu- 50 bucks, so I'm going to get something out of it. <clears throat> yeah. But little I know, that little graph work, um, you know, and, and thanks again to 
Colin for setting that up and thanks to Dad for lending me his ute for the trip and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, he probably ended up paying for the diesel. But what it did is opened up doors for me all around the world and, and the rest is history. So See, that's amazing. Uh, I'm listening to this. I actually, I don't remember that uh, very specifically. I thought, see, I thought mom was flying home, but yeah, no, we went to Australia and flew back. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. See, now it's coming back to me. Yeah, and, didn't, and we watched like a, a rugby game with your family, didn't we? Yeah, we hung out with the family. We went and watched the Hurricanes game in Palmy. And yeah. We, uh, um, no, it was like an we all Blacks game too, I think. Yeah, oh, yeah, we did too. We watched a Bledisloe Cup game with, um, yeah, you're right. It was at the Barnett's house. Yeah. So yeah, my was fun. current partner's family. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we went and watched it there. So you hung out with all the, um, I guess, all of our family friends and mm-hmm. did all that kind of thing. Like it was a great experience. I don't want it to come across like it was. Um, I learned a lot on that for a 20 year old kid having to do everything from the ground up, you know. I mean, I didn't have to do the direct guiding for the Samba, which was probably a, a little bit of a saving grace because right. it might have put me into overload but um, or overwhelm. But doing everything else and behind the scenes, and really, un- it gave me a really good understanding of how outfitting works and how guiding works and how the, um, you know, both the, the limitations and the potential of outfitting in New Zealand and, and, uh, and how it works and and why because I mean I would have gone back to the outfit in New Zealand the following year after I'd been to Canada that first season and and a much deeper appreciation for how it works and the costs involved and all that kind of thing yeah Um, so yeah that's how I sort of got in I guess with you guys and I was also lucky to have my sort of it was separate to the hunting really our friendship sort of developed over the next few years. And yeah, you came up and you visited me in university in Canada. Yeah, so that was directly after right. after that um, guiding in northern Quebec, which, right. again, is another story for another day, but my best, worst experience, I think that <laughs> probably was. I'm lucky to be alive, but, man, did I le- learn a lot. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of when I met you guys. Um, but from there... You know, I went away and, and I worked for a number of different outfits in Canada and we ended up living together in Kelowna mm-hmm. over a winter, didn't we? That's right. Yeah. And that's right about when you got involved, I guess, in the family business, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I'm not going to say I was, I wasn't all over the place, but I definitely didn't know where, what I exactly wanted to do. Um, I didn't even really know, you know, what it felt like to, you know, know anything you want to do really. I was, uh, floating. So I, I, while, so when we were filming down there, I was filming as basically a, a job. I was like, okay, yeah, sure, dad, you know, I'll film for hunting adventures. Um, but I wasn't, you know, researching how to do it or anything. I just had, uh, I had a little bit of experience with camera work. So, I mean, it wasn't super difficult and, um, I just did an okay job. You know, I'd, I'd film what went on and, and that's kind of, and then that, that was basically like a summer job. Then I go back to university and I was taking business at the time. Um, you know, because I had thought, you know, that's probably something that's pretty applicable to, to life. Um, so I was learning that. And then once I graduated, I think it was right after I graduated that we went to, um, Kelowna, right? Yep, right after you graduated, okay. and you're working for your auntie and uncle selling furniture. Right, yeah. So, so I was like, you know, I mean, but really, I had dreams of being, you know, a guitar player and and you know, basically John Mayer and singing love songs and stuff. So, I was, yeah, I was selling furniture at my uncle's furniture shop, 
and I was, and I was not that great at it actually in hindsight. And I was playing guitar on the side and, uh, yeah, just kind of, I mean, yeah, literally like floating, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, do you remember, like we were there and we would, <laughs> Brandon is a very talented guitar player and very talented singer. Um, and we used to go to two or three open mics a week yeah. in Kelowna. Um, yeah, I'm not, 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 not that talented. Well, well, I think that's probably. I could do open mics. That's about it. I yeah. think I opened one time for that rapper and that's <laughs> as far as my career got. <laughs> Anyway, um, different story. Yeah, different story. We won't get too far down that rabbit hole. But I remember it went from sort of, I guess, that floating in limbo and, and me being, it was my first winter in Canada. So, and I'd just come off a back to back hunting seasons in New Zealand and then in Canada, um, guiding in northern BC. So yeah. I was pretty ready f- for a little bit of a mental downtime. So I was just sort of floating as well. Yeah. I was yeah. Um, sort of hanging out and going to the gym and. Um, we were snowboarding and carrying on and you know partying and having a good time um, but I remember we went from that floating and we, had, we were renting an apartment in a building on the lake that we got cheap because the lake was frozen and we were very excited <laughs> about that apartment yeah had like two lazy boys like our friends that um, yeah in front of the TV and we had our own bedrooms and en suites it was quite exciting for a couple of 21 year olds mm-hmm. but anyway I remember it going from that to uh, one day, basically, you're just saying, I'm going home to work on this new show for Dad. Right. And it was a, a relatively quick turnaround. Do you remember? Because um, your dad was always in the background doing stuff, doing traveling, and you know that was always fascinating to me that he was all around the world doing this stuff. And I knew, because I'd spent Christmas with you guys as a family. I think that's when Jim really knew that um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was planning on taking taking note, taking the most of us. If you ever in Canada, look me up. He turned up um, back at his house after a big long trip, probably somewhere in Asia. Yeah, and here yeah. I am sitting in his living room drinking his beer. He's like, "Oh man, <clears throat> yeah, <you> again. yeah. <laughs> here he is." Um, but anyway, the that decision to go was relatively. Do you remember what your process was to because there was almost a little bit of resistance to yeah to get into that side of things from yeah so i'll try and be i mean as honest as i can be you know because i think a lot of times we tend to look at our past and we we try and um you know fit it into nice little um compartments you know like uh you know this is a good time or this is a bad time or or um you know i always knew i wanted to do this but really what happened was uh, we were carrying on and, and we we're I was in the furniture thing. We we're just kind of hanging out. I think at that time I wasn't even doing the furniture thing. I think we were just like, hey, let's just, <laughs> you know, it's just- let's, uh, we can have a lot more spare time to sit in our lazy boys and watch Dog the Bounty Hunter if I'm not working during the day. So let's try that for a bit. And, <laughs> yeah, one and- more time, we can stay out later. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and play guitar longer Yeah, if I we can- don't actually have a real job. Yeah, perfect. That makes total sense. So, yeah. um. We were doing that and dad, and again, this is funny because you said this is fascinating and this is, again, it's hard for me to, to explain this, but growing up, my dad had always been very similar to what he is now. You know, he was traveling the planet and, and hunting a lot and he was very well, or he wasn't as well known back then as, as he is now, obviously, but he was, he was, he was known. Um, and the show, the hunting adventure show, that's something that had started when I was, I don't know, maybe... 13 or so. So it's been going on for quite a while and I was very used to it. So, um, I guess at that point in my life, I didn't really realize how different that, um, 
that experience growing up really was and how, um, you know, in a lot of ways I was lucky to sort of, to, and to have that, um, as an option for a career choice to sort of use that as a, as a stepping board to, to do kind of whatever I want in the outdoor industry. So this wasn't something that I was thinking about at all. Um, I was thinking about, you know, how to write a love song and then dad emailed me on a flight pack from Pakistan. So here I am with no job sitting in Kelowna, uh, drinking beer, watching dog, the bounty hunter. And I get an email from dad on, on a flight from Pakistan where he's, you know, being the badass hunter in a, in a dangerous place. Um, so totally different lifestyles. And in the email, he said, Hey, I'm on a flight back from Pakistan. And I just had this idea of, of a new hunting show. You know, what if we took, cause it, it, so and I don't know how many viewers would, um, how, how many viewers know this already, but back in those days, uh, and even up to relatively recently, you know, hunting shows were different. They were, uh, literally, you know, here's a, it would open up with a shot of, you know, whoever, John, and John would say, well, today, folks, uh, you know, we're going down to wherever, Saskatchewan, we're hunting deers from, or deer from a whitetail stand, and uh, wow, it's going to be a great adventure. And the show would be that. It would be sitting on a stand, it would be the deer come in, it would be, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of thought into uh, how to make shows you know, a little bit more dramatic, how to make them better. I don't know that there was a lot of, um, innovation in the industry. And so that's, again, that's not something I had thought of. That's something that dad had thought of. And on the way back, he sent them an email and said, Hey, listen, why don't we make a show called professionals and bring in these other characters, you know, make it more character based. So I'll be one and we can bring in, and I don't remember the specifics at, at this time, but we can bring in other people and have them be, characters on this show and make it about, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. So it's not just about shooting an animal. It's about, you know, what goes into building an adventure to go and find an animal and to, and to, you know, what, what it takes to be a, be a hunter and be a professional hunter. Um, you know, make your living doing that. So I thought that was interesting when I read it, but to be very honest, I think I didn't even respond for like a week. And, you know, cause I was, again, and this, this uh, seems crazy to me now cause there's people out there I know that would give their left arm to have an email from Jim Shockey saying, Hey, you know, why don't we make the show together? Um, so yeah, I just, you know, I didn't realize what that meant at the time. So eventually I think I didn't respond. He, and he emailed me back. He's like, listen, you know, this, are you going to, do you want to do this? Do you have any interest in doing this? And I think at that time I thought about what we were doing. <laughs> and I was like, you probably, I was probably, hungover. I was hungover. Yeah. And like, you know, the, our TV series we'd been watching in lazy boys would probably just finish or something. And I was finally like, okay, you know, this is a, this is a short term game we're playing right now. And yeah, it's fun, but this isn't what I want to do for my life. Um, and so I, uh, I thought about the email and I said, okay, yeah, I should do this. I think it's a good idea. Um, so I think I emailed back and said, yeah, you know, basically, sorry, dad, I would love to do it. Um, give me a bit. I need to learn how to edit because, and this is the whole other side of this is, is, you know, this opportunity was given to me because if, essentially I was Jim Shockey's son. That's why otherwise I have no qualifications. I have no business being asked to, to try and start a new show. And I don't know, you know, if he asked dad, I'm not sure if he thought that it would be, I'm sure he thought it would be successful, but I didn't know that I don't, I, 
I'm not sure he knew it would be that successful at the time. Um, because at that time it was just an idea, right? It's an, it's a, he had a one page sheet of paper that he'd, he'd written on, on his flight back and that's it. So I said, sorry, Maddie, you're gonna have to finish the TV series without me. I'm, I'm out of here. Um, seen a couple months and I think I went home and I said, okay. Uh, I went into my parents' guest house and, uh, I had my computer with me and I started looking up YouTube videos about, um, you know, how to use editing software to edit a series. Um, and I had a little bit of experience because I'd watched the, uh, uh the original hunting adventures editor was Cody Robbins. And I, when I was like in grade eight, I had watched him learn how to use final cut pro at the time, which is uh, for people listening, that's a, an editing, uh, program. And so I kind of knew how to use it, but not really. So, so yeah, I took some of the footage from Pakistan and I watched videos for hours a day and fiddled around with the computer. And eventually, you know, by the time you came over a few months later, you know, we had, I don't know, maybe a couple minutes of footage that seemed pretty good. You know, it yeah. seemed to edit. I, I actually distinctly remember that. So when, when Bram pulled out of Kelowna, we still had a couple of meet. We'd paid for another couple of months, well, or a month, I think it was. We'd already paid the rent for a month. Mm-hmm. So I stayed and um, I had a, a girlfriend there at the time, so sort of wrapped that up and uh, headed over to Vancouver Island where Bran was editing. And I was gone. We didn't see each other for a month. And I knew less about editing, less about filming, less about the TV industry than anyone of anyone. I mean, I'd been involved with filming a couple of shows in New Zealand and then I'd done a season in Saskatchewan at that point for your old man sitting in a blind with a camera, which I think I got the collective total of maybe half a kill, maybe one deer on camera. But mm-hmm. really, it was a test to see how long I could sit there at 30 below with no proper gear just to see if I was <laughs> <laughs> made. Yeah. Like, when I look back at it now, it was 100% a test. Like There was zero advantage of having me sit there with those guys for that period of time but also at, at that point in time that's kind of what it took yeah, to just to be a, a camera guy yeah you had to be tough and you had to know how to hold the camera and press the record button and, yeah. and that's kind of it that's kind of it so i did yeah. that for a season and it um, didn't put me off for life but that's basically my collective so when i got i distinctly remember in the back of my mind when i got to um vancouver island and caught up with brandon i was expecting to you know, he's been at this for a month. I can't wait to see the show he's put together. <laughs> right. And oh, literally man. the collective amount of footage was about three dudes looking scary uh-huh. and um, an Ibex jumping over a hole, over a, over, yeah, over over a gap, cross, which yeah, gap. to be fair is an awesome piece of footage and slowed yeah. down. It was amazing. But the amount of time and effort it took you to, to figure out how to slow down interlaced 1080p footage Mm -hmm. to make it look like that Mm -hmm. had taken a month yeah and i remember thinking holy shit this is going to be a long process yeah so here's here's another area where i got lucky is because my um uh, you know my interests have always been towards kind of geeky stuff like I, i like nerdy stuff um i like technical stuff um, and I like learning about it. And it's, I mean, it's, for someone like my dad, it'd be the most boring, horrible thing ever for me. I'm like, wow, this is really cool and exciting. So what I didn't, um, uh, what I wasn't that into was actually the hunting stuff to be frank, to be super frank. So, um, whereas if I was a hunter, um, and had been my whole life and I went and looked at the footage that we had, I'd go, oh man, look at that, you know, kill the whatever the Ibex, let's, 
let's focus just on that. And man, this is what people want to see. They want to see more kills. They want to see more hunting. Um, and it probably would have looked a little bit more like a hunting show. Whereas for me, uh, I got that footage and I was like, hmm, I have to sit here for hours and look at this. You know, what kind of cool stuff can I do with it? Um, oh, you know, isn't this interesting? Uh, the technology has kind of come a long way in, in the last few years. Uh, wow, look at what these guys are doing. You can actually use a optical flow program to take this these two frames of those Ibex jumping over a, a cliff that we got. It's just kind of okay footage. And if I spend enough time on it, uh, I can actually use a computer to add in extra frames so that it looks like we got this crazy slow motion shot of an Ibex jumping over a, a cliff, which at that point in time, this has been what, 2011, 2010? Something yeah, like that. something like that. Yeah, maybe 2009, I don't know. Um, that had not been done, right? Other than maybe super high-end productions. Um, like this is this is prior to Planet Earth, you know, so I'm sure this stuff existed somewhere, but on, on, certainly on the Outdoor Channel, nothing like that what was on there. I, I don't think. Um, and I didn't really even know that cause I wasn't watching the outdoor channel, but I just enjoyed playing around with footage enough and spending enough hours on it and using sort of my, my, my interest in the tech side of things to make it, what ended up being a very different feeling product. So. And I, I think that's a huge advantage to anything in business or life. If you don't have any preconceived ideas, you've got a, a period of ignorance where you can get away with, that's how innovation happens. If you don't have any preconceded conclusions made up in your mind, um, it's a lot easier to innovate because you you haven't told yourself that it's not possible. Like it's a your field of view is much wider if you haven't been tainted by other people telling you you can't do it or seeing other things and thinking that's the way it should be done. Yeah, I, I literally did not know that I couldn't do it. Yeah. It'd be the equivalent of, of literally walking up to some someone on the street now and saying, hey, you know, I've got this new idea for a series. Do you want to uh, make it? And you've got six months <laughs> to learn how to do it and, and get your editing down and let's see if you can do it. Um, yeah. and, and I keep going back to this, but, you know, I, I was lucky in a lot of ways. Uh, the technology at that time was had just gone through a huge change. You know, they're shooting film not that many years ago. Yeah. Um, and so because I was kind of a tech guy and, you know, in school, they, they made a priority to, to make sure that we knew how to use computers very well. I had an advantage over other people that had spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in editing suites and all that a few years ago because the technology just wasn't there to make shows. Whereas I got started in a time where we're lit and we're literally, and this is just all just lucky. It's not like I thought about this. I didn't see some rising tide of this change coming into the industry. Um, I, and I did, I could sit in my bedroom. And with, the, I, I think, I remember I literally, I used my, my IMAX, uh, or IMAC, uh, Apple IMAC box as a desk. So I'd have like two cardboard boxes in my IMAC box. And then I just have my, you know, cheap little mouse and my laptop. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I sat in some crappy chair and I sat there and I made a TV series, uh, with basically just that. Yeah. It's amazing, really. And it's, at that point, once I came over and saw what you were doing, and I thought that's cool. And at that point, Jim, I think formally offered me a trial. He didn't offer me a job; he offered me a trial. <laughs> sure, yeah. In those days, in order because the TV show was a the professional TV show was a concept at that point. So mm -hmm. you were essentially sitting working on your iMac box desk, right? Pretty low low investment, um, and then I would. The plan was at that point. Then I would start to travel with Jim and film essentially two TV shows at the same time, 
with zero experience filming. <laughs> like, at, remember up to this point, my experience filming was, you know, pointing a camera around a hunting lodge in Saskatchewan with people eating dinner and setting it up at a, on a tripod, pointing it out the window of a blind and filming deer walking in and eating yeah. on a bait pile. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. not like I had any real experience, let alone did I have any idea what any of the buttons did on the camera, you know, how anything works. So I was coming from it, probably when you think about it, a very similar way in the fact that I wasn't tainted. A, I had never watched any hunting TV shows before. Like, we didn't, outside of Great Outdoors with Jeff and... um <laughs> you know, a couple of shows that have been on in New Zealand for years. We didn't really have any hunting TV in New Zealand, so I hadn't watched any. And, you know, I'd never seen an episode of Jim Shockey's Hunting Adventures. I'd never sat down and watched the Outdoor Channel. So I didn't know what a hunting TV show should look like. So that was a blessing and a curse in the fact that I was still filming Jim Shockey's Hunting Adventures, which was very regimented in what elements of the tv show you needed to get while you're in country in order to make it right in reality it was relatively basic like mm-hmm. this is here are the building blocks this is what the editor needs to make a tv show and if once you had that nailed then you had all this other bandwidth to film whatever you wanted more of the behind the scenes stuff more of the creative stuff more of the culture was yeah, a big part culture. of it yeah, that's, yeah. um so when i first started and once i got underway and through my quote unquote trial you and i move well we're in the guest house for a while but eventually we moved well you moved to victoria yeah and then i was traveling 300 days a year filming yeah filming for the tv show so over the next what three years that show went from a scribbled bit of paper that the old man wrote to winning basically anything that we cared about at the outdoor film awards yeah i um so, and, and this is where my mindset probably changed. I don't know if this is what you're kind of getting at overall, but when um, we, so so we built the, the series and I'm kind of glossing over. I mean, it wasn't like it was a done deal or anything. Like you had to build a pilot episode and we had to go to sponsors and they had to buy into the idea and everything, um, which they did end up doing. And obviously, again, without, you know, my dad being involved in that process is very, very, very difficult to have ever got uh, that the professionals off the ground. Um, but once that was was done, then you still had to make a product that did well um, with with you know with with audiences, right? So um, I remember, you know, I was feeling some serious pressure. I remember we sat down, I th- I don't I think you were there and the f- one of the so we made the pilot episode and everything was fine. We had the sponsors on board, but now you gotta make, you know, 12 more episodes. You have to make 13 episodes and they have to be good. So I remember dad sat down beside me and I showed him some footage of one of the episodes I was working on and it, it needed a lot of work. And he looked at me at the end and he, and he kind of raised his eyebrows like, you know, is this all you have? Is this, is this what, is this where we're at right now? Cause there's a lot of pressure on the line for, for, for him as well. Right. For me, I'm a kid coming from Kelowna, you know, if this whole, if this whole thing crashes and burns, no big deal. I'll go back and I'll play my guitar or whatever. And, and, and that's it. Um, for dad, he's putting his, you know, 20 years of working and building up this, his reputation and his image, uh, and his relationships with sponsors. He's putting that on the line at this point. And I think I remember it's not a good feeling, right? Because I remember thinking, Holy smokes, you know, this, 
I, I got to really be serious about this. And this is, this is not like some small little deal where, um, you know, I can screw up, you know, failure is not really an option at this point. And, uh, but, but yeah, anyway, so what ended up happening is the show did very well. And, um, yeah, at that time beyond my kind of wildest dreams, we went, so again, this, you know, industry stuff, but there's a award show each year or there was, uh, for the outdoor channel called the golden moose awards. And that is basically the industry gets together and they say, okay, you know, what's the best, what's the best, the best on the channel right now? Who's, what's the best series? What's the best, you know? Uh, intro what's the best music sound design all that and that first year the professionals uh won like i don't, I don't know this new series best new series best, and the, the best, best thing about it was up to that point you know yeah your old man put all that stuff on the line but in terms of the internal banter we had within the company right it, it became very quickly <laughs> jim shockey's hunting adventures which is his show that's been for a you know, a long time, which has won a lot of awards over the years, versus the new show, right? Right. Yeah. And I remember him, like, literally sitting down candidly saying, "You know, guys, you've done a really good job, but don't expect too much. You know, it's not like you're going to go in there and, you know, win everything, right? You know, we're still going to, you know, Jim Shockey's Hunting Adventures, we're still going to clean you up, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we won best new show, yeah, best best overall, I think. I don't think we won best overall until the second year. Uh, that was the real. I think we. I don't know, man. I think we won both. Did we? I think we did. Excellent. I think it was. I think that's part of the whole thing that was a little bit shocking. Yeah, I think we won best in series and best overall. Right. At first, and then you know some uh, another award, but uh, you know those are just awards, and they don't uh, in and of themselves they may not mean that much. But I remember to us at the time this was like, like wow, this oh, is huge. Oh, it was huge, 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 huge. I mean that was that was life changing for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that was. I mean, even thinking about it, I kind of get chills because it's. It was. Uh, that definitely put probably both of our paths, but my path for sure on a like my my sort of life just kind of shifted over to into a new direction at that point. Um, and we started working on season two. Yeah, it was awesome. It was a. It's a great trajectory, and I, I think that sort of sums up the story. But for those people listening, there's a lot of lessons in it that you know whether it be related to hunting or tv or, or anything in life if you apply yourself it's a, it's a really good lesson and a good template for everybody to see what is possible at least on the raw product side if you just commit yourself i mean yes being you know in the shocky fold certainly accelerated the process but that doesn't change the fact the raw materials that um you built in terms of your knowledge and editing and producing and, and filming TV shows. And, you know, I'd, be, I'd come back from a trip from Mongolia or something and we would sit down and, you know, because we ended up getting an apartment, a basement suite here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And we'd come back and we would watch movies, watch other TV shows. You know, what was that one that we used to watch a lot of? Departures. Departures, yeah. yeah those those guys are other guys that for me, yeah. Yeah, were in a sort of a the travel side of things. But mm-hmm. they were the guys that were first started using DSLR cameras. and That's right. You know, we went out, we watched that and talked about it and we went out the next day and both bought a brand new Canon 60D and, <laughs> yeah, that's right. you know, went out and filmed yeah. um, anything we could to learn how to use them. And I remember turning up on my first trip with Jim with a DSLR camera and him literally chewing me out for using, you can't use that, mm-hmm. like it's not good enough to go on TV. And it was like a two hour argument 
mm-hmm. about how there's no possible way that you can put a footage from a camera on TV. And then I think at the end of it, he rang you on the sat phone and you're like, yeah, dad, it's actually better than that big camera that he's using. Right. And then, yeah. of course, it went the other way. I, he wanted me to use the DLSI camera and the other camera on everything <laughs> try and film with two hands. Like, you know, yeah. it's it was that whole renaissance of different camera equipment and different styles of filming that was um, – Yeah, and, and again, um, you know, there's just so much to cover, but, but the tech side at that point was so important. I think maybe slightly less so nowadays. But again, at that time, there was a technical revolution happening where the DSLR cameras – overtook the way more expensive big fancy you know 30 pound you know broadcast cameras in terms of um quality i I can't quite say quality because you know there's all kinds of kodaks and stuff involved but the the look was very cinematic yeah and so for you and i watching movies i think we're watching like guy Ritchie movies and things like that um i thought or we thought you know wow this is a very cool look and we can make this work on the TV series, you know, why not shoot it? Uh, and then again, for a lot of people listening, this may not be that interesting, but uh, TV at the time and still mostly is, uh, airs in what's called 60i, which is 60 frames interlaced a second. Yeah. And uh, it gives it this like real look, just like you would see on a, um, uh, what are those daytime? So like a daytime soap opera. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a very real kind of look where it looks like you're on a stage and the lighting and all that. Um, whereas if you slow down the frame rate, so you basically shoot at uh, 24 frames a second, like a movie is shot in, then the footage you have is going to look much more like a movie. It's going to look more cinematic. So I think that was about, you know, end of season two, season three, we started really getting into trying to achieve that cinematic look, which obviously was kind of the pin like in Nepal and stuff. That was really what we were going for. And, uh, just because we liked it because yeah. we thought it was superior than to the other 60i stuff. And again, kind of got a bit lucky, but also, you know, because we were a bit naive and thinking, oh yeah, we can go out there with a, you know, a $2,000 60D and shoot a whole series, <laughs> uh, you know, while everyone else out there is shooting with, you know, super expensive, fancy cameras and, and tapes and all that. And, uh, yeah, we got away with it and, and ended up with a product that, that, that looked very unique and different. And it's been replicated Hundreds of times now. Right. And I should, I should also uh, qualify. We were not the first people to use that. The first guys I know of were actually the um, Heartland Bowhunter guys. Yeah. So I had a conversation yeah. with Nate Flynn. Okay. Yeah. 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 Who's your brother-in-law. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. You know him. Yeah. So, yeah, that is true. They were – and I remember looking at their stuff with you and thinking that is really, really cool. But the, I guess – Advantage or well, let's point just of difference I, I never thought had. Nate Flynn stuff was cool. No, Nate Flynn stuff no, no, no. was average. It's probably I'm average. surprised he's still yeah. on board, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I thought, but yeah, their work was yeah, their work was cool and very cinematic, very mm-hmm. um, artistic. And I remember looking at that, and I guess the unfair advantage, I guess you'd call it, is I mean they they do a lot of deer filming, so they're mule deer and whitetail in their backyard, yeah, type stuff. So they were finding ways to make sowing or harvesting corn or sowing corn or crops look dramatic and yeah. interesting, yeah. which when you actually stop and think about it, it's not an easy thing to do. The advantage we have is, you know, we're climbing mountains in Nepal. Yes. And we're spending, you and I spent, what, five days in Kathmandu filming, you know, cremations. At Stuff you'd never, you'd never uh, prior to that think of filming for a hunting show. Absolutely. Sure. And I remember, I distinctly remember you, even 
four series into it when we was it the third series where we released Nepal season yeah. yeah third season yeah at the like one of those three or four shows it was three or four parts wasn't it mm-hmm. four parts yeah. One of those was the first time that your dad in nearly 20 years had aired a TV show with no kill shot on it. Yeah, that's right. And Yeah. And he was so nervous. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what we've done is normally you would – and this, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why you split up a, a trip into four parts. So at the time – nowadays in church is an hour, but at, at that time Professionals was, was a half-hour show. And what we had been doing in the past was we would go on these – Long trips, right? Because just to get down to Nepal, you know, it was a couple of days and then you got to, you know, get where you're going in the wilderness and hike up there. So by the time you you do everything, you know, you're at least a two-week trip. And in those days, we would just, we turned that two-week trip into one half-hour show. So you'd come back, you look at the footage and you'd throw away all the stuff that you didn't, wasn't really hunting related and then you'd get right into the hunt and, and you know, that was your trip to Nepal. Um, but for financial reasons as well as creative reasons, we thought, okay, what if we don't make one show out of this? Let's make as many as we can. And um, when we got back to the edits, we we had enough footage that we thought we could make four episodes out of. Um, but that included one episode where there was, was no kill at all. And that, yeah, I, I remember looking back, I think this is crazy because, I mean, it's very obvious that that was going to do fine. It was still a very exciting episode. I think that was when you almost died. Yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't that where the boulder, I think it was boulder the, hit you? when that boulder came down? Yeah. Right. So we were we were worried that 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 near death experience wasn't going to be exciting enough for for people at home. So which seems crazy, but at the time we were very very nervous. That we were going to air that, and people are going to be like, you know, what are you doing? You're stretching all this footage out. We just want to see you know animals die, basically. Yeah. And uh, that turned out to not only not be the case, but but almost the opposite. We had a, a, a crazy amount of positive feedback from the Nepal series, and it actually led to the next step in the chain which is the series uncharted that the uncharted series, yeah. was basically the nepal series i'm not saying getting too far out of the box saying the nepal show and experience with both of you and i there filming because that's probably the only trip that you and i ever filmed together. together yeah it was the first time that jim had sprung for two cameramen to be on the same trip mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. and Corey had a huge part of that too a huge part yeah yeah Corey part was a huge part of this yeah um so there was two of us there filming it and that essentially served as the pilot for Uncharted. Right. Or at least a proof of concept. That was the idea. So, and, and again, at the time, this wasn't really being done, but we thought, okay, we can make an hour-long uh, series. We don't have to shove everything into a half-hour episode. We have a lot of content. And to prove it, here's a four-part series we shot in two weeks in Nepal. And so um, we set out to do that at the time. Yeah, you and I, Dad and Corey. And... Uh, then we, or dad, I should say specifically, went and took that that series and said to sponsors into the Outdoor Channel and said, listen, we can make this into an hour-long um, show, so let's give this a shot. And yeah, that was how Uncharted was then born out of that that concept. And for the first year, um, you know, I, I was along for most of those trips filming. Yeah. Um, but the cool thing and this is about the probably the peak of this was during the Nepal series where um my mindset and, and yours I'm assuming too really was focused on making the most the coolest, most creative, most interesting, dramatic series possible. And that what that had really kind of little to do with like the monetary side of it or the you know, the the um just being paid to do a job. And this is where 
the difference in my mindset then compared to where it was when you and I met on the New Zealand trip was night and day. Yeah. You know, during the Nepal series and, you know, months prior to that and, and years after, I literally, you know, lived and breathed filming and editing. That's all I thought about. That's all I did. Um, that's all I wanted to be good at. And, you know, that kind of dedication is, is A, it's harder to sustain, but, um, you know, that's where, you know, the naive kind of part fell away a little bit. And I kind of knew that what we were doing, you know, wasn't really supposed to happen like that. You weren't supposed to, uh, do series. We'd have no killer shots or do series, do a hunting show, show a whole bunch of culture and, and, um, you know, had, uh, violin music and piano music in it. Um, but I wanted to do it anyway, because, I just liked it. You know, I thought it was better and I wanted to make a product that was different. You know, I got into shoot, I was reading, you know, Anne Rand books at the time and, yeah. and, um, that, that sort of philosophy where you, you shouldn't let other people tell you a, what you can and can't do, but also what is good or what isn't good, uh, really resonated with me. Yeah. And so I tried to, you know, live out my life, um, with using that, that mindset. Yeah. That's really, really really cool um a question i think i don't know it'd be interesting to hear your answer to this if you weren't making hunting television hunting tv shows or hunting related series what would you be making what would you be doing yeah that's tough because you know i I got into the filming side and, and the the tv side again because you know my dad had sent me that letter and that was a very natural fit um i definitely and this is something i've thought about a bit um i remember i I went to the theater and watched uh interstellar christopher nolan movie and uh yeah i mean that 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 experience of sitting in a theater and you know in front of a i think it was like an imax screen or something too so it was just this giant screen and the, and the you know surround sound and being immersed in the story um that had nothing to do with reality you know this guy's traveling through wormholes into you know different solar systems um that appeals to me a lot like like moving into the fictional world and doing doing what those guys are doing like in in the you know the 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 hunting industry um Obviously, you know, we've, we've, as a team, we've done quite a lot, but in the overall, the film industry, you know, we are total nobodies. And so, you know, if I had to pick something to work towards that I thought would be something that, um, would be really, you know, that would make me very happy would probably be to, to try and get into that side of things to, to go into the fictional world. You should do um, it. You should hundred percent do it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know. I, I agree. I, trust me, I was very close to, to, to sort of shifting my path in that direction. And, you know, shoot, man, we're still pretty young. That, that's certainly a possibility. Yeah, I would love to see you do it. It'd be fantastic. Um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, and you've touched on it a couple of times because you're not, I mean, you're Jim Shockey's eldest son, right? Right. So if you were going to, if we didn't know each other and you didn't look at it, you'd think, well, he's obviously going to be, a, you know, a hunter's hunter, big mm-hmm. time, like yeah. heavily into hunting. Yeah. But it's, you know, ever since I've known you from the moment I knew you, it was pretty clear to me that the the hunting, although you hunt and you enjoy hunting and it's, it's a massive part of your life, you know, if Jim wasn't your old man, there's a very good chance that you wouldn't. 
because you just wouldn't have had the oh for sure yeah i wouldn't have had the 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 experience yeah no for sure yeah so it's yeah. it's an interesting because i mean your sister uh i'd still back you to beat your sister at hunting actual hunting oh easily easily yeah, easily. <laughs> yeah. but <I> mean, <laughs> your sister's taken another um eva's taken another path but again used you know your dad's business and, and reputation as a very effective springboard to go the direction that she's wanted to go yeah and she's gone her own direction and, and has been very successful in doing so yeah and but she's you know she's attached herself to to hunting and being a role model for young women and women in hunting that's right yeah and then from that has propagated um a number of other things around you know lifestyle and living good basically if i had to just try and describe her brand yeah and and stepping back a little further you know dad and mom to their credit you know they gave us they made it very clear that you know we could do even i could could take any path we wanted in life and dad provided every opportunity um to get into the hunting uh like he uh was doing and has done um, so that's why, you know, when I was younger, I was, I was very, very lucky. E- even I both, he took us on hunting trips all over the planet. I mean, I've been on more safaris and, and trips than most people would ever do in their lifetime, um, and have seen amazing things. Right. And, and, and if I had wanted to get into hunting, dad would have opened every possible door and, and, and bent over backwards and, and, um, made that happen. But, you know, I remember when I, I remember when, when all this had sort of came to, or this, this, the shift happened. Um, we were whitetail hunting in Saskatchewan and dad, um, had basically every year of my life had taken us out to Saskatchewan and we go deer hunting. Um, not every year of my life, but, but for several, several years we've done this, went out, sat in the stand in, in the winter and waited for the deer to come in and, and, uh, and hunted them together. And it was kind of cool because you're sitting together in a blind waiting for the deer to come in. And at the time, you know, I didn't really realize what that meant. You know, it's father son time together doing what, uh, you know, f- what we both love ostensibly. But what ended up happening is I started realizing that I really wasn't enjoying doing that. Um, I didn't really enjoy sitting there for days at a time waiting for the deer to come in. It wasn't that exciting. Um, to the point where, you know, I, I would actually be a pretty good shot because I wouldn't get as excited as other people you know, my heart rate wouldn't go racing because I just wasn't that into it. And it's a horrible thing to say. And I, but I, you know, I was just young. I didn't yeah. really know what I wanted or not wanted. Um, and so at one point I, I remember telling dad, you know, dad, I really just, I, I don't want to go deer hunting. I really don't. It's not something I want to do. Um, you know, maybe we can go bird hunting or something. And, uh, dad had tears in his eyes at that point. I remember he had a big fat, you know, tear rolling down his cheek and I felt horrible and still do. Um, but, like you say, it kind of worked out. The camera side, the filming side was what interested me. And it wasn't, first of all, to clarify, I'm not against hunting at all. I love hunting and I do go hunting myself. Um, I'm very much for it. It's just, I would rather do, like, I would rather film. I'd rather have a camera in my hand, generally speaking, than, than a rifle. Um, so yeah, it worked out. Eva became, you know, the, the, the next generation hunter in our family. And, you know, I, I, I was much happier on the filming end. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I mean, it's, again, it's your nature nurture thing. Cause you couldn't have been brought up in a more hunting 
no, based not family, uh-huh. not possible, like literally no. not possible. Um, and you went hunting, and it's not like you, you just went in, like you just not. Like I'm a hunter, I love hunting. You, I could sit and talk to somebody about hunting for days and days on end. Yeah. Um. But at the same time, it, it, it's literally it's not for everybody. Some of us are hunters for whatever reason. We have a connection somewhere in our brain or our DNA or our, yeah, absolutely in yeah. our person that the hunting thing just clicks with us. Like you yeah. go hunting, and there's a there's a connection. You think, huh, this feels right. Right, and we all talk about it and explain it in a different way. But I mean, you know, your dad is a, I mean, he is a hunter, but he also has another couple of connections around exploration. And right. Yeah, dad's an explorer almost, and hunting is a explorer, collector, yeah, like true naturalist, mm-hmm. conservationist. Like he just loves wild places, and hunting is a vehicle to get to those wild places. And the more weird things that you're looking for the wilder places you end up going so it's you know it's different for everybody it really is yeah i think dad a few hundred years ago would have been an explorer absolutely yeah he would and that's just you know or a kept, conqueror uh, maybe a conqueror, yeah, if he's born in mongolia around Genghis yeah. khan's time yeah maybe a conqueror <laughs> uh but but Whatever he'd be doing would be uh true to himself right and i yeah. think that's that's a, that, that whole thing where you know where uh, I made dad, you know, shed a tear. That again was another shift in my life. And if I had to go back in time, I'd do the exact same thing because you have to be, you have to be true to who you are or you won't really find, you know, your happy little place. You can't, you can't live your life for other people. You have to be who you are. Um, I think that's, that's like so, so, so important. And I know I'm, we're not, I'm only 32. I'm not super old, but you know, if, if I could, pass down one piece of wisdom it's that you have to do what makes you happy and you have to really think about you know is it is it other people is it my surroundings that's dictating what i'm doing with my life or is it because i'm really interested in this and if you find yourself um out there hunting or out there in the wilderness and you're you know doing whatever but all you can think about is you know camera tech specs and what new uh red camera they just released last week and like you know uh christopher nolan's new movie you know well, there's two options. One is, can I apply that my interest in that area into what is what I'm doing now, which is what I sort of did, right? I mean, probably if I had my my ideal situation, I would not have went into the to, to the outdoor world, right? I would have been doing interstellar movies, but um, I did because that I could fit my interest in, in in the technical geeky stuff and use that in a weird way as an advantage, which you never think would be in the uh, hunting industry. Yeah, which right? is just a bunch of guys who hunt, who pick up a video camera and let's yeah, make it. Yeah, was, it was. Nowadays, it's it's changed, but in those days, it was. And that ended, so this geeky little kid ended up being, that. like my interest was it was a, in this geeky stuff was an advantage for me. Massive. You know, not, yeah, massive and, you know, naive or not. Um, so if you're that person, you need to think, you know, how can I apply my interest in that into um, some somewhere that will give me an advantage in life? Um, and you know, nowadays, shoot, it's not just me working on the shows. There's a whole team of guys and, you know, they do most of the, the stuff that I used to do. Like they do the the hard stuff, you know, putting all the, the footage together, um, and, uh, and out there in the field doing the hard stuff, you know, pulling the long hours and, and shooting footage. And 
the people that want, want to do uh, what we do now, and this is the cool thing about technology is in the old days, yeah, you get a sheet of paper and you look at a resume and you'd have to, you know, call the past employers and stuff and say, oh yeah, this is where this guy came from. Um, nowadays, when we look at new people coming on board, we don't hardly even look at the resume. All we're looking at is what is your best piece of work? Just send me that. Um, and like the, the stuff that we were doing maybe is a little bit harder now. Like it's harder to, to make a TV series on a laptop, but you can sure as heck you can put, um, you can make great content on a laptop with your shoot with your iPhone. Yeah. You okay. could shoot and you can, and, and the ability to, um, and this, we haven't touched on this either, but like from w- once you really dive into, uh, filming and telling it's, which is really, you know, storytelling is what we're doing, right? Filming is just a, a part of that. Um, the nuances uh, and the the information is kind of endless. Like, like how do you tell a good story? What makes a good story, right? How do you get people interested in your characters? What makes a good character? Uh, those are all things that you can apply to any situation and to the point where if you wanted to, you know, like you and I talking right now is a super, you know, kind of a boring setting. We're in, we're in, well, you're in, we're in your apartment, which is nice, but it's not exciting. Um, we're talking for, you know, however long, an hour, two hours. Um, if you know how to film this though, you can make this into an interesting little scene. And so I guess what I'm trying to uh, go in the long way here, but, uh, what I'm trying to say is that if you're out there and you think, oh, this is really hard to do what these guys have done and oh yeah, you know, uh, they had, or brand had Jim Shockey's his dad, which of course did make it easier, but you can still go out with your iPhone or better as a DSLR and you can shoot something that is, um, that is really amazing. And you yeah. can do that without traveling to Nepal, without going to crazy places. You can do it right wherever you are. Particularly if you live in New Zealand, lads. Holy. Oh yeah. Yeah. New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. That, that for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and the cool thing is nowadays you can get someone to see that. Yeah. Right. I have, um, anytime, multiple times, actually people have sent me, um, content and you know I, I definitely look at look at everything uh, on social media or whatever just just send it like you can you can get eyeballs on um, on your work you just have to like like I said you have to live and breathe the stuff it can't be a uh, it can't be just something you're you're sort of interested in it's, it's got to be something that you dedicate your life to yeah hunting TV is an interesting thing because I feel like a lot of the content that's produced and put out there is done solely from a place of ego so people will already be hunting and they think well how can i boost you know this might be a subconscious thing but how do i get more people to know how great i am at this and that for a lot of the hunting content that's out there and some of it even that's even on television particularly in north america comes from that place so as a result there's very little creativity that's where you end up with the cookie cutter this is have a look at how great i am doing this this and that whereas if you're coming to it from a more of a passionate place about who you are and you want to genuinely share that with people and there's i guess a little bit more substance behind it that's when you end up getting creative and um, more inspirational type footage where you watch it and you're more engaged it's not um, so stale you have to tell a story you really do that really is it yeah in the old days, I mean, probably when movies first started, it was good enough just to show, you know, footage of a horse galloping by. And that was... It was, and they were silent. There was no sound. 
Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and then, you know, and, and people are like, wow, that's amazing because they've never seen it. Right. But then, yeah, that, that evolution went into, yeah, uh, uh, more story driven content with, with no sound at all. So silent movies. And then from there, it went into, um, more of like, uh, you had sound, but the movies felt a little bit, they're slower paced for sure. They felt a little bit more like, uh, like a play at the time. Um, right up into, you know, nowadays where it's just, you know, it's almost too much where it's crazy fast cutting and, yeah. and cameras spinning all over the place, like Michael Bay style stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. Like we're already like, there's always going to be a bleeding edge in f- in terms of technology where you can put something out there. The content's pretty average, but it's new. Say suddenly VR becomes, um, you know, VR or 3D stuff is probably the next thing that's going to happen with cinema and media and all that kind of stuff. So if you're the first person to do that, your content doesn't have to be that great. Right. But since we started filming and the introduction of DSLRs and every time Canon brings out a new Handycam, and they're you know, probably a hundred times more capable of producing footage now than the old XLH1 cameras <laughs> that I used to lug around the mountains. Yeah, they are, yeah. yeah. You know, it's technology is getting better and better and better. So it's when you're in that zone of, you know, HD footage, you know, the difference between 1080p and 4K, you, you can tell the difference, but it's not, it doesn't actually make too much of a difference. It makes almost zero difference. Zero difference yeah. when you're actually, because most of the people consuming stuff on computers and cell phones anyway, that stuff is way less important now than your actual content. So if you can tell a quality story, as Brandon said, by filming it on your cell phone, people are still going to watch it and enjoy it. It doesn't actually make a difference whether you film the same exact thing with a red camera. Yes, it would look nicer, but that's not what audiences engage with. No, not unless you're shooting planet Earth, right? Then you want to have the best stuff because that's what you, that's the best of the best. That's what people watch. You can't compete with, I'm just using an example, you know, planet Earth. We are never going to do that. We don't have the budget. We don't have the gear. We don't have the patience to sit for eight months and wait for, you know, a polar bear to jump on a, on a um, baby seal pup. So what you have to do is you have to tell a better story. Yeah. And that, that, you know, for the people at home who want to get into making their own movies and shorts and things, it's, it really is all character and all story and that's it. Forget everything else. That's all it is. Yeah. Everything you don't try and emulate the Hollywood stuff because those guys are like Christopher Nolan. I guarantee you had a, a cell phone. And, you know, a crappy little mic like what we're using today. And he go out there and he can make an excellent movie. In fact, he made one. It's called The Following, I think, uh, was his, his first movie. It's in black and white. Um, it's just when you get to the level, all the, the gadgets and the fancy cameras and the effects and everything, that's all just because they can. But, yeah. but, but if you break it all down, it's what does he actually bring to that situation? He's not bringing the fancy gears and the cameras and stuff. He's bringing... Um, his ability to tell a story, and that's that's that really is it. Yeah, and we're uh, talking about Hollywood movies and all that kind of yeah. stuff, but it's one hundred percent translatable to hunting stuff. Like it doesn't actually make any difference if you want to make something that people will watch and enjoy. Tell a story, tell an effective story, and that, particularly when you know the difference between I guess the Hollywood and the Christopher Nolan stuff is they have paid professional actors mm-hmm. who can tell a story and he can go no you need to put more you know emotion in that or bring it up here or this is the place that you're coming from give me that yeah the difference between that and what we do or what you do these days i don't do any of it but you do (laughs) is you're trying to tell that story 
it's reality television. So you're trying to tell a story with what is actually happening. And generally speaking, the people who are in front of camera are not professional actors. So you're, you sort of have to capture what's happening in real time. Mm -hmm. And that's why older hunting footage and shitty hunting footage always had the voiceover, you know, and then we walked over a hill yeah. and there was a I big just bucket. knew that deer was going to be right there. Yeah, which makes me dry wrench now when I see it mm-hmm. because it's so forced and fake and it's boring. So trying to tell a story in the field with what's actually happening in a candid manner is a very difficult thing to do. But if you can master that, even for a, you know, take your weekend tar hunting or a afternoon's meat hunt on a bush line somewhere and turn that into a, a story that you can, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. Um, that is much more consumable than, you know, just a whole bunch of shots of different animals randomly spliced together with some music over the top of it. I mean, that's your basement level type footage. It's sometimes good to watch, particularly if it's cool shots. And yeah, people sure. sit there and watch it because they've got nothing else better to do. But yeah. if you want to take that next step, it's about telling a story. It really is. Right. And, um, you know, we've been doing this for long enough now. I guarantee you there's there's someone out there that is way more in tune with the future than, than say, I am. Because, I, you know, uh, 10 years ago, you and I were both snot-nosed kids that didn't know, you know, what, again, what we couldn't uh, do. But now, I know you've kind of left uh, the filming side a bit, but for me, you know, I'm very aware of what is very difficult to do and what what, uh, like I, I keep saying, you know, what I got kind of lucky enough to do in the, in the old days. Um, so my thinking as much as I hate to say it is certainly, uh, restricted in that way. And I know, like I, I say, yeah, you got to tell a story and you got to focus on characters. I think that is, um, universally true. However, I'm still thinking, or at least it's natural for me to think in what I've been doing for 10 years, which is TV, right? I'm thinking, okay, you need, you know, four acts and a half hour show and you have to have, you know, commercial breaks and all that. Okay. So you have to like go out of the commercial break and something that's interesting. Um, and we are restricted to whatever the runtime is, you know, 22 minutes out of a half an hour. Whereas nowadays with YouTube and social media and all that, the way that people are, uh, um, sort of, uh, looking at content is different you are not restricted in the same way that I have been in the past 10 years. You can um, create content however you want it, however you think that people might want to uh, enjoy it. And that might be not 22 and a half minutes. It might be three minutes. I don't know. It might be, or it might be like, like a Joe Rogan podcast, which is three hours of content. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, and that's really cool. And I think if you're, you're at home and saying, man, like, how do I differentiate myself? You know, look there, look to the, look to the future and see, you know, what is, what does the future look like and how can I sort of make my content, make um, what I'm trying to do match uh, what I see the future as being? I think that that's certainly been the key to any success that that I've had and I think will be the key to success going forward. Don't emulate people that are already doing uh, uh, what you want to do on, 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 say, TV or wherever it is. Um, make it your own, you know? Yeah, like like take a bit of a risk, and that you kind of have to. Uh, that's great advice. It really is, and it's the point is that everything is evolving. It's always changing, and opportunities are on that kind of, in my opinion, are on that sort of bleeding bleeding edge. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That's really cool. Okay, so quick question. Yeah. Sure. 
just because we haven't talked a lot about hunting, hunting. Right, yeah. And as you touched on before, you know, you've been done a lot just purely because um, being um, who you are, you've done a lot of different hunting safaris all around the world. Mm-hmm. So if I say scariest moment while hunting, does anything jump to mind? Yes. Uh, so we <laughs> we were in uh, Tanzania and this was – Shoot, this was, uh, I don't, I would have been maybe even in high school at this point. So, and in the summers before I was filming, dad would just take me on trips. So we went, I think we went and spent like, uh, six weeks, or no, like a month in Australia. Then we immediately flew to Tanzania after that. So it was a long trip. And, uh, dad was hunting lions. And the way you hunt those is you, you, you know, bait several different areas and you drive around during the day and see where the lions are coming in at. Um, and every morning you're sitting at, at, you'd make blinds and you'd sit at those blinds. Um, so at about 4 a.m. we're sitting in this blind and it was super dry, obviously in Tanzania at the time I had issues. Like I get nosebleeds a lot, which I don't have now, but, um, so that morning I had like a super bad nosebleed, like I couldn't stop it. And so on the way into the blind, you know, I, I just grabbed a whole bunch of Kleenex and was putting it over my, my nose to try and stop all the bleeding, but it's still blood everywhere. And I couldn't get it stopped. So we, we, uh, sat in the blind and, uh, we hear lions roaring in the distance, um, which as you know, is, is one of the coolest sounds you'll ever hear. Yeah. There's something in the back of your brain that's been there for a long time. When you hear a lion roar, a jaguar grunt, any of those sounds, there's yeah. a connection that lights up in your brain thinking I shouldn't be here. Yeah, you're thinking it's, it's I, quite fr- wolves howling is another one. Yeah, there's something that sort of switches on back there. You think, ooh, yeah, it's it's an intrinsic. It's it's hardwired into us for sure. You think, okay, I need to be running right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, we're sitting and it's pitch black and lions were in the distance and the rowing kind of stops and I'm sitting with my nosebleed and uh, we're just in a tent. Like I say blind, but it's just a, it's a tiny little tent. I mean, it's not like bigger than this table. It's you, you barely fit, barely, barely, barely. Fit the, I think there's four of us in there, you know, kind of edged or shoulders are hitting the tent, just tiny little, little fabric. That's it. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the bait is, you know, whatever it is, 50 yards away. Anyway, we're sitting there and it's, uh, you don't hear anything, no rowing. And all of a sudden we just hear, start hearing like, you know, crunching, crunching noises. Um, kind of like what a 400 pound line would make when it, when it's paws are hitting, you know, grass, like little leaves and dry leaves and grass and stuff on the, on the ground right around the tent. And, uh, I thought, oh, you know, maybe that's, that's just hyenas maybe. And you can't, so while we're in the blind, you also can't say anything because you don't, you don't want to scare anything that might be around. So it's, we are, we're all silent in the tent. Dad's got like a muzzleloader and it's like leaned up against a tent somewhere in the pitch black. And, uh, yeah, this, this pride of lions started sniffing around our tent and walking all around it and making huffing noises. So they, they go right up to the, you know, where the tent is kind of on the ground. Yeah. Um, kind of. I don't know, I'm sure, like it's a it's a scene from Jurassic Park or something. But they start going, <laughs> <laughs> trying to you know basically spook whatever's in this this thing they can't really understand, spook it out of there. Like yeah. this little you know bush basically is what they think it is. And uh, yeah, so they started walking in the tent. And I was like, holy, you know, <laughs> f bomb. These are that we're surrounded by lines. And and in Africa, um. One thing that I, that, that I found was interesting was during the daytime, if humans see lions, the lions are gone, right? They're running. They're, they're, they're scared of humans where we were anyway. Nighttime, totally different story. They kill people. Like they, 100%, they kill people. They are not 
scared of people in my experience at night at all. Yeah. Like and- it's turned from hunter, like truly they're the hunters, you're the prey. Um, you know, if you're a villager out there walking around, you know, you're, you're not, you're in a lot of danger. So they, they were smelling us knowing we were people and trying to, you know, get us to, to run out of this little bush. Uh, so they could basically, so they could kill us. And I'm sitting there, um, with my nose full of blood everywhere and, you know, bleeding, trying to, you know, stop it while this, the literally, you know, they're just, they're feet away. And all they'd have to do if they wanted to was just take, you know, their claws. And I think our PH, uh, Mike Fell, he said at the time that, uh, each claw is basically a zipper and they just go and there's, you know, they, they want to just scratch the <laughs> tent and here we are, you know, the prey yeah. sitting there. So that was scary. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And it's, I can't even imagine what that would be. I had a grizzly bear do that to the side of my tent once. Okay. Very much like that. Yeah. It's, it's not a good feeling and it, it's such a, cause in the human mind, we know that, you know, a tiny thin bit of fabric is, you know, trying to hide behind a yeah you know a piece of piece of glad wrap <laughs> and a train coming and using that as to block like it's yeah. just not an effective barrier to to but like they a, a but this meal. is just this one little thing in their mind that they just can't quite figure out what it is mm-hmm. i mean it wouldn't take them much to learn and once they figure that out you'd be in a lot more trouble but it's yeah i imagine that was nothing short of terrifying did everybody else in the blind know that your nose was bleeding yeah, I think so. Yeah, right. And, and I think I think they're also they started knocking branches around too, right? Again, trying to just get us a spook out of this, you know, whatever this foreign object was. And uh, I think I think I remember Dad saying afterwards because uh, we were all we couldn't again we couldn't say anything. We just we just sat very 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 still, and they eventually left. But I think even Dad was like, you know, once they started knocking the branches on, he was like, okay. You know, basically, and this is one cool thing. There's a lot of cool things about dad, but one uh, thing that he says a lot is basically there should, you should never let fear control you. Right. And so I think he said that when they started knocking branches around, he said, okay, this is enough of that. You know, I'm not going to be scared of this. You're not going to make me scared, Mr. Lion out there, just because you're knocking branches around. Um, you know, we put ourselves in this position and, uh, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to run like you want us to. You got, you know, if you want to come in here, you're going to have to come in and use your zippers to open up the tent. And, you know, which, which, you know, they aren't, you know, smart enough to do. So they eventually walked off. So, um, I don't think I went out lion hunting the next morning, but, <laughs> I, but, 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 but dad did. And, uh, that his philosophy where, you, you know, fear is something that shouldn't be feared, uh, is something that, that sticks with me for sure. And I try and emulate as much as I can, though I won't, can't do it yeah. as perfectly as he does. Fear is healthy. If you've got a, sure. If you're hunting with somebody that's genuinely not f- scared of anything, um, right. that's dangerous. But yeah, you want how to- you react to it is the biggest thing. Like knowing that that's a dangerous situation is a, a massive advantage. Sitting there and thinking, yeah, not a big deal. Right, not smart. Yeah, acting on fear like, is 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 what the thing you want to avoid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Letting it dictate how you act. That's learning how to uh, regulate your flight or flight response mm-hmm. is is a very important. Putting yourselves in situations that are scary is a great way to learn and develop and become a better version of an upgraded version of who you are. I think. Yeah, and there's varying degrees of fear right it's like i think i might be late 
for this meeting. That's scary. Versus there's a lioness sticking her nose under the side of my tent. <laughs> trying, yeah. to, trying to flush me out. I mean, that, that's obviously a slightly different. Yeah, um, and actually, in all ser- in all truthfulness, I don't know that that really was that dangerous. I think if you talk to any African PH, she'll say, "Yeah, you know that happens fairly often. No big deal." Um, one thing, one more thing, I, I just came to me was we were sh- we're shooting the the Carter's War series with Ivan Carter. Oh yeah, and you yeah. want to talk about someone who um, recognizes fear, but basically is a master of it. And that that is definitely Ivan. That, Dude, that, I'm so glad you brought this guy up. I want to talk about him. He is yeah. awesome. Yeah, he's he's a he's a. Hmm. I mean, there, there's few people in the world uh, like Ivan, and and I see a lot of similarities between my dad and Ivan for sure. So just pretext, Ivan, you did a series with Ivan. It's called Carter's War. Yeah, which War stood for Wild Animal Response. Correct. Yeah. Can you give me like a, a two second bio on who Ivan Carter is and what that TV show was about? Uh, if you boil it down, it's basically about um, trying to save wildlife in Africa. So Ivan wants to um, or believes in uh, the idea that the wildlife in Africa, a lot of it is under a lot of uh, pressure from various sources um, and, you know, a lot of poaching and, you know, it's, and he wants to dive into the bigger issues going on and what's causing this and try and try and help. And, and educate people about, I guess, the way that it really is in a lot of these places. Yeah. And the, I watched most of the episodes. You sent me a whole bunch of them. And a lot of the, the common recurring theme a lot of the time is where wildlife is pushing up against human population. Right. Yeah. And then a lack of understanding on all fronts, like the people who are actually butting up against the wildlife. I mean, their concept of um, endangered species and, and looking after you know, hippos and lions and elephants and crocodiles is a pretty survival-based and prosperity-based way of thinking. Like, yeah. I don't want there to be crocodiles next in the river that I'm living next to because they eat my children. Yeah, li- quite literally, yeah. That is quite literally the way they're thinking. I don't want elephants, period, because they eat my crops and, mm-hmm. you know. And in, in Africa, that means, you know, you're starving. You yeah. starve to death and you yeah. die. Mm-hmm. So... The trouble is that on this side of the world, we have a very first world view of wildlife and, you know, we try and solve third world problems in terms of wildlife with a first world view, which right. is, it just doesn't work. And until you go to Africa and you actually, you know, I'll take that one step further, go to Africa outside of the photo safari national parks, which are, you know, a tiny little postage stamp of of a bubble in the middle of, mm-hmm. you know, a, an ocean of a giant continent, you know, right. real Africa where animals are wild, wild, and they are in a constant battle with people. You know, the reality there is much, much different. And that whole TV show I thought was a great example of trying to show that, because I mean, Ivan is a PH, isn't he? He's a, originally was a professional hunter. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so he, he spent time, you know, hunting these animals. Mm-hmm but has always had an underlying passion to protect them, to save them. And in a lot of places in Africa, not all places, but a lot of places in Africa, hunting and putting a value on those animals is the only real practical and economical, economically viable way to look after them in today's modern society. That might not rub up, wash well with everybody, but mm-hmm. that's the sad reality of it. 
you know, if, if wildlife wants to, you know, wildlife in Africa doesn't really exist by accident anymore. There has to be some kind of management and economy behind it. Yeah, and I don't even know if it's, if you know, sad is very applicable. I think it's just the reality. Yeah. You know, that's it. Um, you know, there are places in Africa where, you know, quite literally you'll be in, there'll be a village where the people there are making, I don't know, you know, a few dollars a day, maybe, you know, if they have, if they're, if they're, if they have jobs, if they're able to get them. Um, and, you know, a few hundred yards away, there's rhinos walking around where each one is worth, you know, I don't know, half a million dollars or more. Um, if they get that horn to the you know markets in Asia. So there, I don't think there's a single one of us who, if we're sitting there and our family's starving and, uh, all we need to do is get through that fence and shoot that rhino, um, with our, you know, whatever homemade musket and we're going to be, you know, set for life. There's, there's very few of us that could resist doing that. Um, and so you've got that issue. And then you've also got, um, speaking of the value side where, um, it's just a meat thing, you know, like that, that's extreme, but there's also just, you know, where people are starving and there's animals walking around with 500 pounds of meat on them. Why wouldn't you go shoot them? Right. So the idea is that if you can, if you can give those animals value, which, which hunting does, uh, and those villagers see those animals, animals as a resource rather than something to be, uh, you know, shot for whatever the, the value of the meat is, then you've got a formula that is a, creates a positive net benefit for the wildlife. Yeah. And, and that's it, you know, it's just, it's a reality thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a reality thing. And it's, I think it's a very important question to ask in any situation is take all the emotional stuff out of it, whether you're a hunter or non-hunter, it doesn't actually really matter. Vegetarian, vegan, I don't really care. I think it's really important to take every situation at face value and say, what is the net positive scenario here Mm -hmm. for the wildlife and for the people in that area? And honestly, when you take a step back and look at it, hunting, managed, well-regulated, legal, sustainable hunting in those areas is often the answer to that question. It's not always the answer. No. But it often is, especially in the far-flung areas where you don't get you know the same number of tourists yeah. and, and and photo safaris and things yeah. for sure. I mean, it's a again, it's first-world opinion and ideas trying right. to put it onto a, a third-world reality in Africa, mm-hmm. right? And Africa's just so big, and the majority of the wildlife that you and I have had the pleasure to see are, you know, you've got your Serengeti and your you know your um, you know Kruger National Park and yeah. all that kind of stuff, which is tourist hotspots mm-hmm. where it's safe to go there, and they have got parks set up that you can safely drive around and see animals in Tanzania and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is that the amount of land that that encompasses is, you know, zero point zero zero one percent of the landmass of Africa, right? And that creates enough economy by taking photos um, for those areas to sustain them but only just and a lot of those like particularly Kruger they supplement their income selling animals you know selling tags to hunt them particularly greater Kruger without you know I don't know the numbers behind it so don't quote me but I suspect without that additional income that hunting generates you know Kruger National Park might even struggle so the reality is you've got this massive land area and you're not going to get somebody to go and take a photo of a um, royal antelope in Ghana, you know, you're not going to walk around in the jungle for 20 days at night 
in 40 degree, 100% humidity, getting bitten and torn up by every little bush to maybe get a blurry photo of a royal antelope. Maybe. Like, people are not going to pay yeah, to not do many. that. Yeah. Not many. Whereas hunters will pay, not only do that, you know, and, and do that regularly, you know, but they'll pay $40,000 for the privilege. So it's just, you know, from a real practical point of view, giving value to those animals through hunting is the really only line of protection those guys, those animals have. You take hunting away, they're toast. Yeah, I do feel, and again, you're right, you know, we got to be careful because we put first world values onto third world situations. Um, you know, we're never going to have the the exact perspective, you know, that, that really is maybe required, but emotions in the, for us is, is literally from my, from my experience, emotions are, are kind of a luxury, right? Like, like feeling sad about something or feeling, uh, that because a panda is cute, we should save it over a, you know, platypus cause it's ugly. I don't, you know, like those are first world feelings that we have. So when people, and this is something that, that I have experienced firsthand is, you know, down in the Southern parts of, of, uh, North America, we think, Oh, you know, that cute cuddly polar bear, uh, man, we need, we need to, you know, save the polar bear and there's, you know, there's not enough of them and, and, uh, oh, you know, horrible hunters up there are killing them. But then you go up there and you spend time with the Inuit people. Um, and you realize that the whole thing about polar bears and when they're disappearing and all that, that was all caused like way back in the seventies when the commercial hunting, the commercial guys were coming in here and killing thousands of them for their, for their, you know, their pelts. Once they stopped that, if you talk to any, and which we did literally to the elders up there who were around during that time, they said, yeah, there was no polar bears then. Now, now there's way, ma- way more than there ever was. Um, and you know, there's a tremendous pressure to stop polar bear hunting, uh, altogether and to say, um, yeah, you know, you can't go and kill these seals because they're cute. And these are things that the Inuit people have been doing for thousands of years and their like literally their culture, their identity is built around uh, their ability to to hunt these animals. Um, you know, you take that away, and they don't have a reason really to go out into the you know sea ice and on dog sleds and, and do what they've been doing. You know, their incentives to go and work at the local diamond mine or whatever uh, owned by the people in the south is 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 much more attractive. And so by um, you know, by us not having the right perspective and using an emotional argument uh, to do something uh, and to make something happen, where we have, we have no business really going in there and and uh, uh, making changes, that can have far bigger consequences than what we are than what we really think. And just because we we just you know we just don't have you always have to keep the reality in mind. What is this? You know what what is if we meddle in this affair? What what changes are really going to come out of that? Yeah, and it's so hard because I think big NGOs and save the animal type organisations, um, to in my opinion, almost exploit animals and people's emotions to generate economy to quote unquote save the seals or save the polar bears or save the elephants whether the actual reality of it is often very different. And, you know, I have a lot of empathy for those people around the world, and it's, to be honest, the general population that don't have the perspective that we're lucky enough to have. And as you say, we'll never have the full perspective of a, of a villager living in Africa or a, 
um, and you're living in a village in Kaglaktak. Like, we're never going to have that full perspective, but I know enough that I know that it's not as simple as it may appear to everybody else on the outside. Have you seen Angry Inuit, the documentary? No. I'll send it to you. It's oh, very good. It's the, And I'll include it in the show notes here. I did put it out in the newsletter a couple of weeks ago, but it's a great – it's made by an Inuit girl, and it oh, tells cool. a story from about seal hunting and banning seal hunting in Canada and the impact that that's had on her family, her life, her village. And now the repercussions of that in terms of the, you know, oil exploration and the sonic, you know, they do the sonic booming stuff looking for oil and, you know, all of that. So the people who, particularly in Europe, save the seals, right, ban seal hunting, the long-term impact on that, the irony of it is, is that whole peninsula, particularly on that side of Canada, is um, basically they don't have any time, resources, or reason to stop what's going to be oil exploration and sure. and completely ruin, you know, the irony is probably hurt the seal population a thousand times more than, you know, selectively hunting them for subsistence and selling their pelts ever did. Yeah. Dad has a cool saying. He said, uh, it's sometimes you can save an animal to death. Yeah. And that that would be an example. Yeah, and it's, I just find it, so desperately um i find it overwhelming at times to be honest but desperately um sad that all of these people that rallied to save the seals have the best intentions like they are in it for the right reasons but they are being led along a path which to be honest is flat out wrong misinformed and they're letting their emotions get ahead of them like it's a you know the polar bear hunting people grow up with polar bears on their bedspreads and on the calendars on the wall and having oh, yeah. you know coca-cola and you know bears in general and popular culture in the western world and first world countries are cuddly happy-go-lucky animals like and it's you know, they're personified even on National Geographic Channel or on yeah, Blue Planet. They're personified like this is, you know, Susan and Steve, the polar bear, polar bears, and they're looking after, you know, it's just the reality has been taken so far away that people who actually have never seen a polar bear, never read anything about polar bears, you know, will never go anywhere where polar bears live, are having an active impact on not only the polar bears themselves, but the people who live with the polar bears. One of the most impactful uh, statements that I heard while we were filming um, was we were in a, uh, interviewing one of the, the Inuit guys up in um, um, up north, and he said, you know, and here's the thing what you're saying, like, yeah, people, they, they think, okay, yeah, the cuddly polar bears need to be saved. And, oh, yeah, you know, the Inuit people up there, you know, they don't agree with us, but they're just not educated. So, you know, we're, we're right, right? That's a traditional argument that any, any the Western nations have made for years, right? Any, any civilization say, oh, yeah, I know, we're, we're right, we're in the right, you guys are wrong because you're uncivilized, you know, you're, you're not educated. And it's ironic because this guy, uh, and I wish we had the, the footage to, to show this, but he turned around and he said, you know, the, the, the problem is uh, you aren't educated, 
you know, you guys mean well, but you're just not educated. And that's like, that is, to me, that is impactful and, and on a number of different levels. Um, and that's probably true. And, you know, the march of civilization, whether it be Western or, or any really civilization has, it's, there's so much momentum behind it. Um, that, that, that smaller cultures are just, they just get overwhelmed. And even if, even if the civilization, ugh, even if the civilization has the best intentions, it doesn't matter, you know, it marches on and, and it's, it's really, it's unfortunate. I mean, it, to title back, I mean, that's what scares me about the future of hunting is the, the march of civilization, those who are urbanized and are removed from not only hunting, but from, um, legitimate wilderness, right? People go hiking, but you go hiking on a beaten trail around an established route on stuff that, you know, a hundred thousand people have seen in the last year. There's nothing wrong with that and people should do more of it. But when it comes down to understanding natural systems and animals and, and how it all fits together and management, there's a lot that can or needs to be learnt before you can speak from a place of um, education, of, of knowledge, um, and not rely solely on an emotional knee-jerk response. Like it's so easy to pick on, you know, on hunters because people are emotionally attached to animals. You know, rich yeah. trophy hunter kills elephant for fun. You put that on, on any clickbait news story on the internet and people will click on it and get viscerally upset and mad. I, I read an article this morning in New Zealand. To be fair, it was a horribly written article. It was from our National Frickin' News Association. They should know better. Horribly written article about the game Animal Council in New Zealand, which was formed in, I think, 2013, to give the original intention was to give our uh, introduced game animals some management a voice that was to appease the call of hunters um in new zealand we, there's a lot of hunters in new zealand to try and look after our game management game animals okay. that's a very basic version but we have a, a government in at the moment and our conservation minister right from when it was formed um eugene sage has been against the game animal council right from the word go she was one of the most vocal and visceral um, arguers against it when it was formed and now she's our conservation minister through our Labour government and her, not surprisingly, has just announced she's going to review the um, the Game Animal Council and, and why it exists. That is really scary for hunters in New Zealand. We got given something. I think there's been a number of makes, mistakes made since 2013 um, with the Game Animal Council and what it was there to do. I think they've overstepped their bounds in a number of different ways. But again, that's a big conversation that we could be having. But in this article that was written, um, the author of the article, the journalist, made reference to a Game Animal Council member being at SCI in Vegas and meeting with ICC, which is the International Conservation Coalition or something along those lines, meeting with them about hunting and generally right, and conservation. And then there, after that, there was a throwaway statement that says the International Conservation Coalition, what it was called, stands for um, shooting elephants and lions. And it was like a, as a throwaway comment specifically designed to 
get whoever was reading the article upset at the Game Animal Council in New Zealand for even speaking to these horrible, despicable trophy hunters in the US. It made me so angry this morning, like it, to the point I was almost like it, it really gets under my skin because I know in New Zealand the general public. You talk about lion hunting, elephant hunting, any of that kind of stuff. They literally have no idea about any of the backstory. I get it. If you don't want to go and hunt an elephant, that's your own personal choice. I get that. Would I go and hunt an elephant? Probably not. Have I been on elephant hunts? Absolutely. Do I see the benefits of elephant hunting around Africa? Absolutely. But I know that in that news article that was purely put in there to try and tar the Game Animal Council of New Zealand with the same brush to make them look like villains. And it just drove me, like it just, oh, it, <laughs> yeah yeah the the emotional thing it's uh you you can't you can't fight an emotional argument or it's very difficult to with with rational you know with with logic it's it's very very tricky well no one ever wins an emotional argument like, no i mean you, you can't win because it's not it's not a rational thing yeah and it, you tie yourself to a an argument or a way of thinking or a tribe or a and you you go and fight it on a, you know social media and the internet's amplified this kind of behavior in human society like now you can get on there and be outraged about something that you actually don't nothing about and it becomes a a war of against two people arguing from a place of emotion which is just a waste of time and effort yeah i, I mean I, and again i gotta be careful i mean I'm, I'm not an expert obviously i'm not a biologist but it does seem to me that uh if you're looking at these arguments you should look at it from the perspective of the the animals period so is there a net benefit to the, um, you know, to the number of elephants to, uh, in Africa if there's hunting compared to not hunting? I think, and again, I'm not an expert, I'm just throwing this out there, but I think it's it's very clear that the hunting has a net benefit overall. Um, you know, and obviously it gets a little bit more complicated when you talk about, you know, cultural reasons for hunting and things like that. Um, you know, similar to the elephant hunting, the Inuit going and hunting whales is very controversial. And many people say, oh, how could you kill a whale, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's another, you know, that's another uh, time when you know, the emotions are just, they're so hard to to uh, to argue against. You kind of almost have to make it a rational playing field or just you can't even really bother. No, and it, the, the other thing I think that makes it very complicated and, and is every single scenario and situation is uniquely different around the world so people as a whole we like to throw a blanket over things and say trophy hunting is good or trophy hunting is bad you can't do that blanket in some places trophy hunting is absolutely not sustainable and shouldn't be happening and other places it's the only option and then there's stuff in the middle like if you're saying elephant hunting is banned we should bad we should ban it that doesn't actually make any kind of logical sense when you look at it. In some areas, the elephant numbers are low and they're not hunted. In some areas, the populations are um, either stable or growing as a direct result of the management that's going on, whether that be a photographic safari place or a, a hunting place. But the net benefit for the elephant population is good because there's economy there, which yeah. contributes to anti-poaching. You put in water troughs and all that kind of stuff. And then the flow down effect on all the other animals that happen to live in that area is a net positive one. Yeah. And then you've got places like 
Kruger National Park is a great example. They need to go in there and cull, actively cull animals, elephants, sorry, because there's too many of them. Because at the point of where they are, and it's it's a it's a they can't just move on because it's surrounded by a fence and millions of people. So they're in Kruger National Park, they're sandwiched in there, there's too many of them. They need to actively go in there and take some of them out. But they won't because you put the word elephant cull into a headline, you know, the Western world will be up in arms about, you know, culling elephants. How can you do that? Aren't they endangered? It's a different situation in Kruger than it is, say, in Ethiopia where they banned hunting and now they've got no elephants because they cut down the whole forest because there was nobody looking after it. Right, and, that, and that's his socioeconomic issues too. And, you know, you said you ban hunting. Now all of a sudden um, no one's looking after these areas and poachers are like, oh, okay. You know, and they go in there and they get whatever it is, you know, a few hundred dollars for the tusk and that's worth it to them. So they go in their AKs. They kill way more elephants than the hunters ever would. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But it's a big conversation and I think it's one that needs to be had and it, uh, we'll talk more and more about it over the time we have this podcast. But just while I've got you here and I think it was an interesting thread we started on is Ivan Carter yeah. and his relationship with fear and how he controls it. And I I've, I've, I've haven't spent any time with him. I've never actually met him. You've yeah. spent time with him and filmed with him and obviously – um, looked at a lot of footage with him in it, mm-hmm. and but there's one scene. And this is someone that knows the animals that he's dealing with on such an intimate level that it just blows my mind. And that bit of footage, that sequence, I don't know if you just sent it to me raw or it was in a, a thing. But when he's trying to get close to a big bull elephant that he thinks might be wounded from poachers, yeah, and there are two, they call them satellite bulls or I guess. Yeah, I'm trying to younger, remember his term for them. Is it yeah, lieutenant or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But basically, there's you've got an old bull and then you've got a couple of younger bulls that sort of hang out with them, but act as sentries, as as warning system or guards to yeah. look after yeah. them, right? And he's essentially what they are is in elephant terms are teenagers, mm-hmm. and he is trying to get to this big bull elephant to see if he's been wounded or not, and he runs into one of these young bulls who flares up and gets all aggressive yeah and that that footage blew my mind yeah it just blew my mind yeah for those and you're familiar with this but elephants are scary really scary oh they're Um, they're, they're like a hundred times more scary than a grizzly bear oh yeah yeah and that's i think that's something that's usually overlooked but they're often very aggressive um because they've been you know poached and they've been you know, people have tried to, you know, shim away from their crops and all that. So they don't, often they don't particularly like humans. Um, if they're not and, in a big safari park, they hate humans. Yeah, hate them. And they're big enough where they just, they can do anything they want. Um, so, yeah. So here's here's an example of, of the fear thing, conquering your fear. That footage, you know, I was, so when I'm filming that, I'm on like a 400 mil lens or something. So I'm, I'm way back and I'm just kind of watching it uh, play out in front of me. But uh what Ivan, what is so, or one thing that's so unique about Ivan um, is that he has full control of fear. So when he's walking up there, the reason why the elephants aren't stomping him to bits is because they start coming at him. And again, I wish we had the footage to play over this, but they start coming at him and they expect him to move. 
you know, here's this big giant elephant. I'm a teenage elephant. I weigh, you know, whatever they weigh, thousands of pounds. And you're a tiny little human. I'm going to squish you to bits if you don't get out of my way. But literally you're a mass compared to what I am. Yeah. And normally that is what happens. I mean, they kill plenty of people. Um, but what Ivan does is he doesn't move. He just stays there. He, and he, and not only does he not move, but there is not an ounce of fear in his uh, stance. There's nothing to say that, yeah, I'm actually scared of you, elephant. Um, in fact, it's the opposite. It's, you know, you're, you're charging at me. doesn't scare me in the slightest. And I'm not going to make a move for my gun. In fact, I don't think that Fitch doesn't even have a gun. He doesn't. No, he's just, he's, and, and that, that to me is crazy, but that, that's Ivan. So he lets him come out and he doesn't move. And, um, in the elephant's mind, they say, whoa, this is, this isn't right. You know, this is, he should be running. He's not running. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the one that is doing something wrong here. And they, they don't fully commit. Yeah. And they try and get him to move just like the lions of the tent. They, they huff and they puff and they, they come within a few feet. They throw dust and they, um, you know, all they need to do is take two more steps and stomp Ivan into paste. Yeah. And there's nothing he he could do about it. And, and that's where Ivan, (laughs) has his fear so conquered that he turns it into like a rational game. And he says, I know elephants well enough. I can read your body language. I know uh teenage elephant that you're just bluffing, yeah. you know, and this comes from, Ivan's explained this to me. And, and I, again, I know nothing about it. I'm, I'm telling you this secondhand, but he, he spent so much time with elephants and he, and he loves animals and wildlife so much that he can read that. And he, he believes so fundamentally in his ability to read animals behavior, specifically elephants that he will put his life on the line um, with no backup plan uh, multiple times. So, and that happens with, uh, I've seen him do with elephants multiple times and also with uh, lions. Yeah. It's, and for me, I mean, I did quite a bit of animal behavior when I was at university. Mm-hmm. So I did zoology at Otago and the animal behavior stuff always fascinated me. And it's, you know, throughout my guiding hunting career and filming career that's probably the stuff that I've fallen back on the most in terms of my formal education is being able to um, see and, and understand what an animal, animal's doing and have a degree of ability to predict what they're going to do next to a certain level, right? You're not yeah. always right, but you you know you can get to a point where you, you know, six times out of ten you might be right, for me anyway. Sure, yeah. But watching that footage, and not only does Ivan – not show any fear. I'm sure that it's when you you know the animal so well that fear transcends into a place of respect rather than tremendous respect. Tremendous, tremendous respect. Tremendous respect. So it's not like he's going up there brazen like. No, 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 no. Just being like, I'm not scared of you. Uh-uh. Blah blah blah. Because that actually, an animal can read that still as being fear or unsure. He's just so. What stumps that five thousand pound animal? Is the fact that he can look, he looks at Ivan and he goes, This guy knows something that I don't. Yeah. Like it's just such a, a confidence in understanding what that elephant's doing to the point where he's so calm and relaxed, he's mic'd up and explaining to the camera or you, camera, and the audience what the elephant's doing, why he's doing it. And what sold me is like, You know what he's going to do now? He's going to go over there and pretend to eat because he's embarrassed. Right, because he and he literally the elephant sort of goes over there and picks a bit of grass and he's sort of, you know, half sticking it in his mouth and Ivan's like he's not even really chewing or swallowing it, but he doesn't know what to do next because I haven't reacted like he's been conditioned for me to react. Yeah, uh, and, and you know that man. 
So we tried to to get Ivan, you know, even onto bigger networks and to get him a, a larger audience because I think like what you're describing really at the time I was like, wow, this is this is unbelievable. I mean, this this should be on Planet Earth type stuff. This should be something that Ivan should be a household name. I mean, he should be, uh, you know, and he's he's not because basically it boils down to his hunting past. And people look at, you know, yeah, there's there's photos somewhere of Ivan next to a dead elephant. And they said, oh, this guy isn't what we think he is. He's a he's a stone cold killer and he doesn't care about elephants. Not, nothing can be further from the truth. Yeah. His knowledge of their behavior is is really nothing short of incredible, in my opinion. And um, the respect for the animal and the love for the animal. Like Ivan would literally, he's dedicated his life to trying to ensure that there's you know, not only looking after elephants, but everything in Africa. Yeah. And, and he's done stuff like, especially the lion stuff, the elephant stuff to the lion stuff. Um, even, I think Ivan knows this, you know, there is a small possibility that Ivan could get it wrong. Um, and he knows that. And, and he does those, those, I mean, he does it very dangerous things. Anyway, we filmed him, uh, where he walked up to this, this pride of lions was over a kill. And, he literally just walked up to him with nothing but his hat. And I think he picked up a stick at one point and he, he pushed these lines off a kill in daylight uh, or when the light was fading. Um, and, you know, they're bluff charging him and coming at him. And, you know, even he admitted, he said, yeah, that was, that, that was a bit hairy for sure. You know, cause they're so flighty. Like the lions can make a bad decision too. Yeah. And you can give them all the, the right signals on the planet. Like, Oh no, I think I'm just going to kill you. And Ivan, in seconds, he said he would have just been lying there, you know, blinking with his neck broken. Um, nothing we could have done. And he he puts himself in that situation, not because of the monetary stuff. Trust me, there's not a lot of money in what what Ivan and I were doing in Cars War, but he does it. Um, he does it because he he believes in the wildlife and he believes in doing um, what we can to to help their situation out in Africa. And you know. One way to do that is to get people to watch, you know, and to, and to show them that these are not the fearsome killing creatures that we think they are. Uh, in fact, you know, you can interact with them and actually even know what they're going to do sometimes um, if you know the animals well enough. I'm not advocating. Don't go like next time you see a grizzly bear, don't go walking up to them. Just saying, <laughs> you know, I've been spent years with these yeah. animals. Um, and yeah, and he, and he definitely puts his life on line. He did that with the, the croc episode too, where, uh, there, you know, he was in a little boat in the middle of the night and you know, crocodiles kill fishermen all the time there. And he's sitting in the boat just like them and, and make splash in the water. And, and he knows at any time a croc can come and, you know, grab him out of, the, out of the little canoe and there's nothing he could do about it. So yeah, yeah he, he, uh, yeah, yeah, he's a really interesting dude. He's someone that I hope I get to meet one day. Cause I mean, he's, Current last time I saw him pop up on Facebook, he um, is working heavily with the anti-poaching stuff. You know, his his focus, I think, has swung heavily onto the anti-poaching stuff of late, has it not? Yeah. So Ivan is actually uh, doing another series with us. So it's Carter's War was um, more about you know investing into poaching crimes and the wildlife issues in Africa, and now he's actually looking at where hunting has um, a, a benefit to animals. Um, and a benefit to the people. So he's looking at areas in Africa and actually around the world, North America too, where uh, hunting and hunters' dollars are making a uh, having a real positive impact. So a net benefit for yeah. animals and animal populations. That's really mm-hmm. cool. Because, I mean, it's a story that's so hard to tell quickly. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, you can sit there and have a two-hour – like I can sit down and 
have a two-hour conversation with someone here in Vancouver who's never hunted before, and if they're a logical person that's not, you know, already made up their mind that they're an animal activist, you know, they can sit down and say, hey, you know what, still don't like the idea of hunting elephants, but I can see there's more to the story than perhaps I may have seen before. But it's hard to get somebody who's not interested in hunting to have that two-hour conversation with you unless it's, you know, they get stuck with me at a dinner party and the only thing I know how to talk (laughs) about is hunting and conversation. I mean, you should see Anna, my partner, roll her eyes every time it comes up. But it's got to the point now, and kudos to guys like Joe Rogan, who has a podcast that is you know was is pop culture generally it's around fighting and lifestyle and living in la comedy and you know pretty wide audience Mm -hmm. has got into hunting in the last 10 years and has at least put in people's mind that there may be more to the story than they originally would have thought and you know a number of times now i've been approached by people that Normally, the hunting stuff would have never come up. But yeah. then, hey, I listened to a podcast the other day and I've got some questions. I hear you do a little bit of hunting or you're involved in the industry. You can, you know, let's have a conversation about it. And they're generally interested about it. So maybe the pendulum swinging. Who knows? I think it is, man. I mean, it seems to me it is. How um, do you get Ivan Carter, mm-hmm. the new series that you're making, into the mainstream? Like, how, do you, how do we do that? Well, my responsibility in this is is to make the show as good as it possibly can be. And the idea is, um, you know, the Outdoor Channel, which is where it's going to be airing, obviously works very hard to get that show out into as many households as they possibly can and get that message out all over the planet. So, you know, my role in that is basically to make sure that the product is very good. So, uh, you know, speaking in, term, in terms of how to get into every person's hand in America, um, my contribution, my role would be to make it as good as it possibly can be. And Ivan works very hard in the field to make that happen as well. So, right. you know, that that's kind of as far as I, I look at that one. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe it's priming people, you know, with jo- what Joe does is, uh, you know, he may not convince everybody on his podcast that trophy hunting is a, is a good thing. Um, but he certainly has a, has a positive, a net positive effect for, getting people to at least be open to the conversation about hunting. Ivan would be uh, a great guest for him on his podcast, actually. Uh, yeah, he really would. No, you're right. Yeah, I'm actually surprised Joe hasn't reached out to him. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe Joe just hasn't seen the the crazy footage, the crazy stuff that Ivan does. Because, yeah, you're right. That would be a that'd be a tremendous um, platform for Ivan to, 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 for people to understand. And Ivan is, a, is more than just, you know, we talk about the, the crazy stuff he does, but there's much more to Ivan than that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. He's he's unbelievably knowledgeable, but he's the person who should be sitting here talking about Africa. You know, that's that's the expert. You know? Yeah, absolutely. One day. Yeah, one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that we'll we'll draw it a close here. I know you got to get out and do some real work for the day, but right. I do appreciate you taking the time. And we will let's have another conversation soon. Um, I mean, I could talk all day about the hunting stuff and the conservation yeah, stuff. I could I talk it. all day about that and also camera tech specs if you want to get into that, but <laughs> put half your audience to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know you're not on the crack book. Are you on Instagram? I am on Instagram. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've been meaning to use it more. I do. I kind of like, you know, check on it, but I don't post much nowadays. Uh, but I am planning to use it more. Yeah. Okay. 
So I will put your link to your Instagram account in the show notes. Is there any other way that people can see stuff like Carter's War, for example, or any kind of footage? Um, I believe, you know, the Outdoor Channel has an app called MOTV. I think that's where they're really pushing for social international um, viewers to, to go to. I think you can. So is that kind of like a Netflix for outdoor television? Yeah, basically, yeah. It's actually a really cool idea. Um, so they've got all the, you can watch, all, as far as I understand, you can watch all the Uncharted, all the professionals episodes. I'm not 100% sure if Carter's War is on there. You just have to check. Okay. Um, but that's probably the best way to, to view our stuff for sure. Obviously, the Outdoor Channel. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, that's 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 the easiest way yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, if I'll put Ivan Carter's um, Facebook link. I know he does. When he posts on, on Facebook, he's usually posting about something that he's pretty passionate about. Yes. He, maybe yeah. three or four times a year, he'll put something out with some pretty heavy hitting mm-hmm. of late around poaching and anti-poaching photos that, you know, and he takes some time composing those posts so there if you're a hunter and interested in that side of things and the conservation side of things he's a pretty good um person just to have in the background that it might pop up on your news feed because he when he posts something it tends to be pretty on the ground real and firsthand oh yeah um and it it can be quite shocking um for those who, who haven't seen that kind of thing before um so i'll put a link um in there as well um yeah man other than that, been a pleasure. Uh, pleasure's on mine, mate. Uh, thanks so much, man. Yeah, Appreciate buddy. it. This episode of The Educated Hunter is brought to you by the awesome people at Go Native. Uh, Go Native make a number of different products which are interesting to hunters and outdoorsmen alike, but today I'm going to talk a little bit about their, their fruit bars. I love these things. Their fruit bars are super tasty but they deliver much slower burning boost of energy than you'll get from your normal chocolate bar. They have been designed basically for high-performance athletes. They're widely used by our Olympic athletes, Commonwealth athletes, let's say world champion rugby teams. They all use them and love them. They give you a real boost of energy when you need it, but it's not that sort of cheap, high-caloric sugar rush that you get from your average chocolate bar these things are awesome it's one of them in every 24-hour pack that you have for lunch but I also buy an extra box of them to have they're an awesome thing to have when you're getting down on energy and it's a long day you have one of those things that are a real pick-me-up and they'll, they'll last for you know a couple of hours rather than a short period of time the Go Native fruit bars Another great option for anyone who's out there doing it on the hill, be it hunting or just generally out there climbing things, uh, I'd highly recommend these. As always, the Legends at Go Native are offering us a 10% discount to all of our educated hunter listeners. So if you jump over to their website, which is gonativeworld.com and enter the product code the Educated Hunter, all one word, at checkout, you'll get 10% off whatever you buy from there. So next time you're heading out for an adventure, give their fruit buyers a try. Thank you for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. If you would like to receive a short email from us once a fortnight that contains everything that we've found interesting, educational, entertaining or inspiring within the hunting world, as well as updates on relevant hunting issues, our on-the-ground initiatives and any upcoming events, please visit theeducatedhunter.com forward slash join. You can also check us out on Instagram at theeducatedhunter.com Or finally, join the conversation in the Educated Hunter Facebook group 
The links for all this can be found below in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening and catch you on the clearing.